to be together. Amen. It is a little extra Holy Spirit this morning. It is a man. Isn't it just easy to look at what you have compared to what's around you and think you don't have much? I I I think about that anytime we have discussions about our partnerships with what God's doing in the rest of the world. It is just really easy to look around St. Louis and think, man, I just don't have much. Uh, until you give yourself a little larger perspective, you know. Uh, we're continuing our series today on the idea of the glory of God. And we're going to be in Isaiah 6 today, if you guys want to open your Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have house Bibles around the room. I'd encourage you to snag one. By the way, if you don't own a copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to take one of those home or even just talk to one of our pastors. We'll get you a slightly nicer one. Before we jump into this, I, do, I have to pre-apologize. And the reason is this. So we, we got to go to this, uh, or several folk from our church got to go to this SENT conference that our uh, St. Louis Association put on uh, down in Tower Grove. It was this really powerful, encouraging time of worship uh, with pastors and leaders from our community coming together to just encourage the church uh, to step up and say yes to God's call in their life. And it was, it was really good. that we, we had a group from Emmanuel that got to go be a part of it. And I got to hear one of my favorite preachers in our area preach this text. And it was, I'll tell you guys, uh, sometimes I just have these moments where I'm like, why do I preach? Uh, and this was one of them. Uh, I was, I was uh, texting a fellow pastor friend who knew I was preaching this text this weekend. And he goes, hey man, you have to change your text because you'll hate yourself if you preach it after Kempton. So <laughs> that is a joke. I mean, that actually really did happen, but, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm joyful to be here and, and to work through this today in Isaiah 6. But if you were at the Scent Conference Thursday, I do apologize for the letdown you're about to receive uh, by comparison. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're in this series talking about the doctrine of God's glory. And, and here's kind of what we've set up so far. We talked about the idea that the church as it exists in our culture and our time right now has an image problem, right? The majority of the immediate connotations people, Americans under 40 have about Christianity and the church are negative, right? And we talked about some of the reasons why that may be. But ultimately, the thing we kind of dug into is the idea that this should matter to the church. That if you call yourself a Christian... The poor reputation of Christ's church in our community, in our culture, should matter to you. And it should matter to you because it distracts from the glory of God. It actually belittles the glory of God. And the glory of God, as we know, is the solution to the human problem. It is God's glory it is, it is that majesty, that power, the immensity of our God that actually speaks into the desires of the human heart. It's what we're built for. It's what we long for, which, by the way, really is the point of this whole series. So we opened in this text in Exodus talking about how the glory of God is massive. It's so massive, so weighty that it's hard for us to comprehend. It's also because it's so massive and weighty, terrifying, right? That's why the scripture talks about the idea of fearing God. His majesty is so immense that we can't survive it, even though we're made for it. So when sinful humans encounter God's glory, the only response is this weird mixture of terror and desire, right? It leaves us stuck. It leaves us in a strange place. 
longing for our design, longing to be connected to the glory of a mighty God, but knowing that his glory would destroy us. That, that to long to bask in the glory of God is similar to longing to want to walk on the surface of a black hole, right? You're not able. So we're going to continue this idea today by talking about how God's holiness speaks into his glory. And I think it's important to keep this larger perspective in mind as we discuss the glory of God. We're talking about this tension, this tension between fear and desire as human beings, right? That, that we want to live as we're designed, but we're stuck. What we're going to see today is that Jesus in his not just immense glory, but in his immense love for us, makes a way for this tension to turn into joy, absolute joy. He has made a way for us to dive deeply into the glory of God. Truly, beloved, truly, his glory is our reward. It is our greatest joy as creatures. And all this comes back to this aspect of God's glory, his holiness, his holiness and its relationship to our sinfulness, right? The sinfulness of humanity is not compatible with the holiness of God. This is where we're going with our text today. And I think what we're going to see in this is that ultimately Jesus Christ, the lover of your soul, is the solution to this holiness problem. It's amazing. What, what kind of love, right, moves the God of the universe to make a way for sinful us? And I think ultimately, which is where we're going to land with this, guys, is that the love of God, it just, man, if you consider it, if you experience it, the only sensical response is joy. To, to, to be loved like that, how can it not move us to radical joy and radical obedience, right? How could you not give your absolute yes to a God who loves you the way Jesus loves you, right? So, Isaiah 6, we're going to start in the first verse, if you want to read with me. It says this, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. The hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And the one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole of the earth. And the foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices. And the temple was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is removed. Your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. And he replied, Go. Say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull. Deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their minds and turn back and be healed. And I said, until when, Lord? And he replied, until the city lies in ruins without inhabitants. 
houses without people, the land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain, and it will be burned again like the tabernacle of an oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is in the stump. And this is the word of the Lord for us. Pray with me, church. Father, I ask today as we take a few minutes to engage your text, I ask, Lord, that you, that this, this prophecy would not be true in our midst. That we would not be people who keep our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds stubbornly closed off to you. Lord, give us a tenderness to you, an openness to hear from you. God, even those of us who have been working hard for weeks, months, years to build up our walls and our calluses to avoid hearing from you, to avoid having our pet sins and our idols and our wounds and our traumas touched by your word, Lord, I pray that you would open us up again. Speak afresh to us, Lord. Remind us of your love. Remind us of your gospel. Let us leave here today fully enveloped in the amazing love that you lavish upon us. Jesus, we need you for this work. We need you to soften our hearts. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. So what's going on in this text, right? Like this is, this is maybe a more famous text, especially out of the Old Testament. So you've maybe have heard this preached or discussed before if you've been in church a longer time. But, but, but let's, let's walk through this because I think there's a couple things, especially historically and kind of culturally, that'll help clarify this for us. So essentially what this text is, is the prophet Isaiah, one of the biggest books of the Bible, the, the, the scripture, by the way, that Jesus most often quotes, the prophet Isaiah is describing a vision he received in which he fully understood his commission and calling as a prophet to Israel, right? And Isaiah had a long, stinking ministry. He was a guy who lived kind of in the, the, the courts, in the palace of Jerusalem uh, during the time of the divided kingdom leading up to the fall of Judah. He ministered throughout the lifetimes of several kings he was in his ministry a long time. And this is a vision he received early on in his ministry that clarified for him, this is what God has called me to, right? Now in this, in this vision, he sees himself in the throne room of God. That's intense. It starts, by the way, in the year King Uzziah died, near the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. He has this vision. He finds himself in God's throne room. And the description here, like, it really is kind of hauntingly beautiful if you let yourself kind of pick through it. But before we get to those details, I want to do two things with us. The first one is this. I want to ask you guys, especially if this text is more familiar to you, but, but even if it isn't, I want to ask you guys to do your best as we discuss this and consider it. I want you to imagine it. I want you to envision it. I want you to try and mentally put yourself in this space. Because there is something about this story that just is just inherently experiential, right? Like we're reading about Isaiah having this existential, spiritual, emotional experience that changed the entire course of his life. And it's similar to when your friend comes up to you and they're like, I had the trippiest dream last night. Let me tell you about it. And they tell you about their dream and for them it's really powerful. And you're just going, you're nuts. I, I don't care about this, right? Like it's, it's just hard when you hear it described. And so, so I want us to do our best. Let's put ourselves in this scene. 
I want you to imagine this as though God gave you this vision. And I think there's something to that that'll help us kind of poke through here. There's a couple also just cultural things that I want us to dig into. But ultimately, God, well, ultimately, guys, I think what we're going to see in this text is just this clear and beautiful window into who God is and who we are, right? There is just this clear distinction. This is what your God is like. This is what you are like. And here's how those things come together. I'm excited for that. So a couple details. First thing we have to understand is this. In the Jewish mindset, the throne room of God was a literal spiritual place that looked exactly like the inner sanctuary of the temple. Now, the reason for that is because the inner sanctuary of the temple, what's called the holy place and the most holy place, was an exact replica scaled up of the sanctuary in the tabernacle. Only it was set in gold and stone and timber versus in tents, right? And the tabernacle, if you don't know what that is, that's, that's okay. The tabernacle was not designed by humans. The tabernacle was the mobile temple, right, that God himself designed, described, and handed to the Israelites. If you remember in our text last week in Exodus, when Moses goes up on the mountain and receives the covenant, receives the laws from God, God himself is like, hey, write this down. This one's important. And he describes exactly how he wants the tabernacle built. The tabernacle was this really just complex series of tents that Israel carried around with it the entire time they wandered in the wilderness. And by the way, for hundreds of years after they were established as a nation, and it was the place where they worshiped, the place where God physically dwelled with his people. And so in the Jewish theology, in the Jewish mindset, they looked at the design of the temple and said, this isn't something we made up. God gave us this. This is a description of what his throne room looks like. And so when Isaiah has this vision Remember, it's, it's a vision, right? Like the way you think of a dream. Like he's in the throne room of God, but he's also in the temple in Jerusalem, and it kind of winds together in his experience of this. Now, I have a picture here of kind of a recreation of the uh, Israel temple. This is kind of the inside of it. If you, look at, if you look at a picture of Solomon's temple, the thing we're talking about, it's just a big box. It's, it's, it's a big old rectangle, or I guess a rectangular prism. Uh, and inside it, it's actually pretty simple. There's a lot of beautiful, intricate artwork and carvings, but the actual, the actual structure and what's going on is pretty simple. In the sanctuary, you've got what amounts to just one room. That's divide, part of it's divided off with a curtain. The whole of it is the sanctuary, the holy place. And in the holy place, you've got a couple articles of worship. There's a table with bread on it. There's a lampstand. It's a big old huge menorah. And then there's an altar where very specific special sacrifices are burned up. Behind the curtain sits the Ark of the Covenant, one of the most sacred objects in Jewish theology, right? This, this golden overlaid wooden box that the Israelites built and put together in the wilderness and it contains within it some sacred objects, the Ten Commandments, you know, written, the hand of God, those sorts of things. But what's interesting about it is the Ark of the Covenant represents the throne of God. Sitting on top of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant is a gold-carved chair, and then some gold-carved, weird, angel, like, wing-covered creatures kind of covering up the chair. You have to remember, right? Like, God made a big deal out of the idea, I don't want you to make idols of me. No graven images. Nothing created can represent me because I'm the creator. 
So instead, what they grave, what they made, was his throne and his surroundings. But they didn't carve God. And so if you were to walk into the Holy of Holies and look upon this sacred object, you would see what looks like a throne in a throne room, but with no one sitting on it. And the reason is because God himself dwelled in the temple. His very presence manifested in the tabernacle in the temple. You go and you read the stories of when the tabernacle was dedicated, when the temple was dedicated. The same, it's the same as when we read about what happened on Mount Sinai. Smoke, lightning, fire, thunder, like the power of God manifested itself in these spaces. So Isaiah finds himself in the throne room. And he's not just in the temple. He's not just staring at the Ark of the Covenant, which he shouldn't do. No, no, no. He's in the throne room of God and the mercy seat, that's what the throne of God on top of the Ark is called. The mercy seat is occupied. That's not the way it should be. Like human eyes aren't supposed to see it like that. In this vision, God finds himself in the throne room and there is God on his throne in the space and Isaiah is terrified, right? As you would be. Now this is where another bit of context is really important for us. This text starts with this seemingly just innocuous piece of like putting it in a time frame in the year King Uzziah died, right? Well, if you go back and read about King Uzziah, there's actually something important here. Remember, Isaiah ministered to Israel's or to Judah's kings a long time. He lived a long time into old age. He served over, under several kings. But Uzziah is pointed out here because Uzziah is a cautionary tale for those who would follow after God. If you go and you read about King Uzziah, King Uzziah was one of the few Jewish kings who actually genuinely worshiped Yahweh. He loved Yahweh and he sought him out and his reign was blessed because of it. But, but he stopped short in this really strange way. See, Uzziah never actually sought out the scriptures. And here's what I mean by that. You have to remember, we're talking about ancient history when printed books weren't readily accessible. The scriptures only existed in the form of handwritten scrolls. The way we think, just assume educated people would access books, this is not the way the world worked thousands of years ago, right? So even though King Uzziah was an educated man who loved God and was seeking to lead Israel in a way that honored God, he never once actually studied the word to find out how God would like to be worshipped. He didn't have the priests go into the temple and find the scrolls and read them so that he might know how God would be worshipped. Instead, he just kind of went off of what he knew and what the cultural norms were about how worship worked, and he just went for it. And for the most part, God blessed Uzziah's reign. But it built up slowly this pride and this arrogance in him. Over years in his reign where he's like, I've worshiped Israel's one true God, Yahweh, and because of that, God's blessing my reign. Look how awesome I'm doing compared to all the other nations. God must really like me. I must be set apart from all the other kings. And it culminates in one day during the temple worship when the priests are getting ready to offer not just the normal sin offerings, but sacred offerings where they go into the sanctuary and they use the special anointed altar inside the sanctuary. The king shows up and says, yo, I'm going to offer the sacrifices today. Hand me that incense burner. 
And he grabs the stuff and starts to wander into the temple. And the text says, literally, the priests like gather around him, begging him, do not do this. You will regret this. Like, like go back and read in Exodus, right? When Aaron's sons worshiped God in the non-prescribed way, it didn't go well for them. The glory of God consumed them and burned them into ash, right? And here's King Uzziah marching up the steps of the temple being like, it's all good. God loves me. And he wanders into the temple and he's got the sacrifice and he's got the incense. And the high priest is arguing with him as he backs into the temple saying, you cannot do this. I know you love God, but this is not the way to honor him. This is going to go badly. And as they're arguing back and forth, God strikes King Uzziah with leprosy. As they're speaking, his skin starting from his forehead blooms ghost white. And he drops everything and he freaks out and he runs out of the temple. And by the way, he lives the rest of his life in quarantine. He enters into a secondary palace and he's never healed. He lives the rest of his life in isolation in that building with his son acting as kind of a king regent. In the year King Uzziah died, the king who hid away in his temple because he profaned the glory of God, right? The king who you'd see through the windows ghostly white, whose son was ruling in his place for years before he died because he profaned the glory of God and he entered into the holy place when he was not to be in the holy place. The year King Uzziah died, Isaiah finds himself in the holy place. (laughs) Oh, shoot. I am not supposed to be here, right? And Isaiah is terrified. And look at the image of God's throne room. You notice the first thing Isaiah describes and notices is God himself. The reason for here for this is really simple. If you find yourself in the presence of God, God's the first thing you notice, <laughs> right? Like that's just the simplicity of it. Here is God. He is seated on his throne. The mercy seat is, is not an empty statue on the lid of an ark. It is occupied. God himself is ruling over reality. The text says the train of his robe filled the whole of the temple. Now, this is a weird image for us, but this is an important thing in this time in this culture. In, in spaces of victory, kings would wear these robes that had insanely long trains, trains that would literally trip you. Like think of when you go to a super fancy wedding and like, you know, the bride's walking down the aisle and people are literally carrying the train of her dress, right? Like think of that, but some buff warrior dude wearing a robe with a super long train behind it. This is, and the longer the train, the greater the glory and honor of this particular king. Yahweh's train fills the entirety of the temple. So he's sitting on his, seating on his throne and his train drapes off and it like wraps around the room and keeps wrapping around the room and keeps wrapping around the room until it fills all the way up to the ceiling of the room and is busting out the windows. The train of God, his, even his robe, fills up the entirety of the temple. Remember, it's a vision, right? Otherwise, I guess Isaiah would be drowning in robe train. And then we're told about these creatures. The text calls them seraphim. They're, they're hovering, flying above God, singing praises over him. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, I want to talk about these guys, but I need to take a quick detour here because I think this is actually important for us. As we talk about these creatures for a second, we're going to talk about them because the text talks about them, and I think there's importance for us there. But I always, I'm always cautious 
When folk take too deep of a dive into any kind of angelology or demonology, like the theology of spiritual creatures, angels and demons, and you should be too. Angels and demons, according to the Bible, are real spiritual creatures that God made. Some rebelled, some did not. The Bible unashamedly talks about them. They have an important role in church history. Angels proclaim important things that happens in church history, like coming to Mary and things like that, right? Like these are real creatures and they are important and Christians should not be ashamed of this part of our theology, even though it is inherently, unashamedly supernatural and spiritual. But the problem, the problem, guys, is the Bible is not terribly concerned with giving us much of any information about spiritual creatures. Because it's not really important to the gospel. It acknowledges them. We know they exist. We know they, they can exist in a physical world at times. We know they interact with physical reality. We know there are different kinds of spiritual creatures. Some of them actually have names. The Bible teaches all of this, right? But oftentimes, you'll hear Christians take this weird step further and they'll try and parse out like the differing roles and ranks and authority and kinds of creatures and how they interact with God and how they interact with humanity and what their role and relationship and authority is. And here's the deal, guys. Anytime you hear someone who's just really confident about the breakdown of the hierarchy of the spiritual world, you just need to know we just don't know that. The Bible doesn't teach us that. It doesn't give us much detail about how spiritual creatures or their world works. One day in eternity, I guess we'll probably know more than we do now. But if someone starts giving you a line about the various ranks and authorities of spiritual creatures and how that affects your faith and the way you interact with Christ and interact with spiritual warfare and your role as a Christian now, I'm just going to tell you, run away from that. Don't buy into man-made theology. It's not necessary and it's not helpful. I know that's a harsh way to say it, but I think there's danger when we start resting in man-made theology. What the Bible gives us is sufficient for our purposes as followers of Christ here and today. It's sufficient for the purposes of the kingdom of God. Our text is a perfect example. We're introduced to these, creature, these creatures that Isaiah calls seraphim, and they're beautiful, and they're terrifying, and they serve a purpose in this text. How do they relate to what the Bible calls cherubim or, or the named angels or archangels or spiritual warfare? We have no clue. We don't know and it doesn't matter. <laughs> we, we can take them, we can make something up or we can just take at face value what the scripture actually hands us here. And by the way, I assure you what the scripture hands us here about these spiritual creatures is more than enough. Like we, we can explore that and be blown away by that and then just not need anymore. So, Let's talk about this. The word seraphim literally means burning thing. <laughs> Isn't that a great name? And, and the reason is this. Isaiah doesn't have good language for what he sees. He sees these things and he calls them burning things because we can assume they're burning, right? And they're, they're hovering above God's throne. And they've got six wings. And they're, and they're similar, by the way, to, to, there's only a couple times in Scripture where God in a vision allows people to see what his throne room looks like. Once it's here in Isaiah, once happens in the book of Revelation, the apostle John is given a vision of God's throne room. And he describes these creatures that he calls the living creatures that seem really similar to these ones. But by the way, I think it's important to note, seraphim and living creatures are not like formal names. It's these guys saw something super creepy and didn't have language for it, and they called it what they called it, 
right? Like that's what we get here. And so the living creatures in the beginning of Revelation may be the same thing as the burning things in Isaiah 6. We don't know. But they are similar. These burning creatures covered in wings, flying over the throne, singing praises to God. And I think there's something here for us that's actually really powerful. Flying over the throne, singing praise. They use two of their wings to fly, which I can only assume is like a hummingbird type action, right? That just seem, that seems right to me for what's going on. But I don't actually know. Otherwise, they'd be swooping, you know? I have a hover in my mind for some reason. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Anyway, two of the wings they use to fly. Two of the wings they're using to cover their face. Two of the wings they're using to cover their feet. And the reason is this. These creatures are basking in the glory of God, unfiltered, up close, right? And even these creatures who apparently, at least in this moment, are designated with the role of basking in God's glory and singing praise to him, even they cannot uncover their face in his presence. Remember God covering the face of Moses so he wouldn't see his glory. Even these burning things can't look just purely upon the glory of God. And they cover their feet. And this is this, I'm not going to go too deep into it, but this is thematically kind of the image here is the reality of their created beings that they don't have authority in and of themselves, that their, their creatureness gives them an inherent lowliness. And so they cover, they cover that piece of them in the presence of Yahweh, right? But it's this, it's this beautiful scene. And I, and I, I kind of wonder, like this whole piece of like, so why does he call them burning things? And here's what I think of in this. And by the way, this is just me speculating. But I think this is actually appropriate to the text here calls them burning things. It makes me consider the burning bush, right? That was on fire, but never burned up. The idea that basking that close to the glory of God just lights these things up. Not that they're necessarily on fire. <laughs> like that'd be a terrible way to, <laughs> that'd be a terrible role, I guess, to have. But, but the idea that God's glory, remember Moses is in the presence of God's glory and he comes back literally glowing, right? He has to he has to put a veil over his face. These creatures are basking in the unfiltered glory of God. And in Isaiah's eyes, they are a flame. They're burning with the glory of God, right? What I think is so interesting about these creatures is that these are creatures. They're not God. These are created beings just like us, except they're spiritual beings and we have a physicality and a spirituality, right? But think about every single time angels appear to humans in the scripture. Think through some of the texts you know, right? Like the famous ones like around Christmas and stuff. What is a human's first response every time they meet an angel? <laughs> they freak out. First words out of the angel's mouth are always, don't be afraid, fear not, calm down, it's fine, it's good, right? Like angels in and of themselves are terrifying. If you found yourself just supernaturally right now in the presence of one of these burning things. I'm just going to tell you, you might be brave. That would freak you out. Something covered in wings, flying this full of all this majesty with the glory of God radiating off it in such intensity that it appears to be just burning in his glory. That would be terrifying, right? It would stop you in your tracks. I mean, imagine this thing floating right in front of you with the praises of God emanating out of it. We would flounder in the presence of a burning thing. And that's not even the glory of God. That is the attendant of God 
who experiences and exalts in his real glory. Just the residual transfer glory, right, would be too much for us. The burning thing is nothing compared to the actual glory of God, right? This is the weight of the scene we're experiencing, and it's mind-boggling. These angels, back to the scene, right? The angels are worshiping God. God is on his throne, and to top it all off, it tells us that the, the room is full of the same smoke that we're familiar with. The smoke of the glory of God is filling up the room. And I've said it multiple times, and I'm going to say it again because I don't think I can nail this home enough. Isaiah is terrified. He's terrified for a very good reason. He knows he is in a place he should not be. Look what he says. I'm sinful. My people are sinful. I should not be here. I'm so sorry I'm here, God. This is some kind of mistake, some kind of accident. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the glory of the king. He's terrified. He knows he shouldn't be there. And remember, right, this is a vision, right? Like he's not on Mount Sinai in the presence of God's actual literal physical glory, but he believes he's there with him. And he represents his sinfulness and Israel's sinfulness in this line, unclean lips. This image of the way sin comes out of our hearts into the world through our words, right? Isaiah is painfully aware of the presence and uncleanliness of his sin in the presence of the holiness of God, right? He's painfully aware of the disparity here. And so the seraphim brings this coal to Isaiah. Imagine the scene, right? The burning things flying around the throne, one of them stops and floats down to the altar, sitting there in the room with him, and grabs one of the live coals out of it and brings it over to Isaiah and is like, bugger up. <laughs> like, brings, I doubt the seraphim sound like that. <laughs> brings it over and burns his mouth with this live coal. <sighs> We're given this particular reminder that sin matters, that repentance is intense, that, that atonement is painful, right? This intense scene. And remember where the coal comes from. It comes from this altar that's in the room, right? This set-aside sacred altar where specific and special sacrifices were burned. It's one of the few pieces of furniture in this sanctuary. There's not much in there. But here's what's interesting. You kind of have to ask yourself, so what was on that altar? Because if you go and you look at the theology, the coals don't do anything. The coals don't offer forgiveness. The coals are just what burn up the sacrifice. The sacrifice is where the atonement comes from, right? So what's the sacrifice? And beloved, I think this is where our text comes alive for us. In John 12, John, if you're reading through the Gospel of John, John gives this, he kind of steps into the story and he gives this uh, just kind of uh, commentary on what's going on. And he's talking about how the religious leaders of the day, they saw Jesus' miracles, they heard his teaching, they were around him, but they didn't believe him. And John quotes this exact text to explain Jesus' ministry. He says, here's Jesus preaching to them, and, and their eyes aren't open, their ears are closed off, their minds are closed off, and they just cannot experience what God is doing through the ministry of Jesus. And, and it taps off 
in this really powerful way where he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke about him. The him in this, in this text is Jesus. See, according to John, when Isaiah spoke the prophecy that we just read, when he stood in the throne room and he looked upon the occupied mercy seat and saw the glory of God, he was looking upon Jesus Christ himself sitting on his throne. It is the glory of Jesus that Isaiah sees. He's looking upon him. Guys, it is the glory of Jesus of Nazareth that sets the seraphim ablaze. So why doesn't Isaiah die in the presence of such glory? Well, the fire of the sacrifice, something about the sacrifice makes space for Isaiah to be in this room, to experience this glory. And who, beloved, who, beloved, is the sacrificial lamb that is placed upon the altar for the sins of humanity? It's Jesus. Just as Jesus is the one on the throne in this story, Jesus is the one on the altar. This whole scene is Jesus. This glory, this power, this immensity, this, beloved, is our Jesus. See, I think we sometimes trick ourselves because we think of the sweetness and kindness of Jesus. We think of our humble rabbi who hugged kids and ate meals with his friends. And all of that is true. All of that is Jesus. But this, this is also Jesus. The glory that lights the angels on fire is also Jesus. He is the God of reality. I say that phrase because it encapsulates a lot, but, but, but can we sit with that phrase for a second? He is the God of reality. All that is. I mean, remember that text that Anna read to us this morning in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him, through the power of Jesus. And hear this church, for him. It's his. He is before all things. His preeminence. If you're this church, and by him all things hold together. It is the power of God that doesn't just create reality. It is the power of God that doesn't just own reality. It is the power of God that sustains reality. You live because Jesus delights in your life. Hear that, church. Your body sticks together because Jesus delights in your existence, right? The laws of physics work because Jesus delights in them, because he tells them to function. That's the reality within which you live. This is the Jesus we're talking about, the glory of God. He makes the invisible God visible. The glory of God is found in the person of Jesus. But hear this, guys. There's more to this than Jesus just sitting on the throne. And we look upon the throne, you see Jesus, we see Jesus, you see the Father. That is part of it, right? He makes the invisible God visible. But there's more to it than that. You see, Jesus makes it such that we can approach the throne and see the glory. 
Moses had to be hidden in a rock. He had to be covered. He couldn't see God's glory. He saw God's goodness from a distance through smoke, through a veil. But Jesus makes it so that you can stand in the throne room and not be consumed. See, Jesus does this when he steps off of his throne and steps onto the altar. And he himself becomes the sacrifice. Jesus, who is worthy of the glory, becomes the sacrifice. He takes the hit so that the glory of God does not burn you to ashes. Look at the love of Jesus. Beloved, Jesus has made a way for us sinners, you and I sinners, to not just approach the holiness of God, but to bask in the holiness of God. Beloved, does this not ignite your joy? Does this not grab a hold of your spirit? Does this not bring you joy? Jesus steps down that you may be lifted up. It's his throne. He is worthy of it. You are the one who is the intruder in that space. But Christ steps down, humbles himself, that you may be exalted. Remember the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15? The rebellious son returned and the father ran to him. The, the, the son who stayed home in his anger and his bitterness, he went outside and grumbled and the father came to him. The father comforted him. Beloved, this is your Jesus. He does not remain distant on his throne, burning up angels that you can't even approach. He steps down and he comes to you and he brings you in. Church, where is the joy of your salvation? Do you not comprehend the, the lavish honor and love that has been bestowed upon you? You! Hebrews 4 says this, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, and yet is without sin. Hear this, church. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Did you hear that? You get to approach the mercy seat with boldness? Boldness? You, sinful you, you and I, approaching the throne of the glory of God. The throne full of so much glory that it lights up angels ablaze. Us, us with our unclean lips, with our secret sins, with our gossiping hearts, with our anger, with our unforgiveness, with hearts full of bitterness and lust, with pride and slothfulness and evil, we get to approach the throne of grace with confidence? Confidence? Boldness? That glory? The glory that would consume you in an instant if you were exposed to it? You've seen the movie Sunshine? It's this weird indie sci-fi horror movie from the early 2000s where they have to go and reignite the sun because it's burning out. And one of the characters slowly goes crazy over the... Because it's a scary movie, you know. One of the characters slowly goes crazy and he keeps going into the observation room that's pointed at the sun and they have to keep it at like 99.9% .9 like opaqueness to be able to see it. But he keeps like amping up the opaqueness because he gets like weirdly obsessed with the sun. And the movie... This is a spoiler, but it's a really old movie, so sorry. 
The movie culminates with this guy like cracking and going crazy and attacking everyone else in the crew. And he eventually walks in this room and just opens the window and just is gone. He's ash instantly because the heat, the light, the power of the sun just and he's gone. Beloved, there's no reason in all of the universe that you should approach the throne of God with boldness. You should approach it with terror. You should not be in the presence of the throne of the holiness of God, period. But Jesus, Jesus, the great high priest, he makes space for you to not just approach the throne, but to approach the throne with expectation, with confidence that you will receive. That you'll receive because this is why Isaiah gives God his yes. You notice that in the text? Sacrifice on the altar purifies Isaiah. His sin is atoned for. And here he is basking in the glory of God. And the minute God asks a question, Isaiah says, I mean, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll go, I'll go. And it's a terrible task. Go spend the rest of your life preaching to Israel. They won't listen to you, they won't repent, they'll hate you. You'll get tortured to death eventually when you're super old. But that's the task. And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Because look at the love he has just received. Look at the grace he has just received. Beloved, this is where obedience to God's call comes from. How can we do anything besides give Jesus our radical yes when we see his immense glory combined with his immense love? See, the love of God, hear this, the love of God turns the fear we naturally and necessarily have of God's glory into passionate enjoyment of the same glory. The love of God transforms our fear of his glory into enjoyment of his glory. The love of God turns the life of following Yahweh from a life of terror into a life of joy because God has made a way for you. 1 John 4.18, I'm going to put this on the screen. I think this is important for us. There is no fear in love. There's no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear. Because fear involves punishment. So when it fears, it's not complete in love. Verse 19 says, we love because he first loved us. Beloved, you give your yes to Jesus to go and participate in the work, to go and love sacrificially, to go and pour yourselves out to a culture and a world that has a distaste for you and your faith and your church. You go and you do that. You live a life of obedience and holiness where you submit your desires and the things you want to the glory of God. You go and you do that because of how much Jesus has loved you. Because sinfully you can walk into the very throne room of God and bask in his glory. And you can expect to receive grace, mercy, love, understanding rather than instant, immediate destruction. What a God we serve. So here's what I wanted to do for us, guys. I'm gonna, Chris, you can come up. I'm gonna land us. We can't give a yes to God out of our own strength can't. Because the life of following God, the life of the kingdom is difficult. I mean, look at what Isaiah was called to. 
Go preach the gospel to a bunch of people who won't listen to you and they'll harass you and eventually they'll kill you. Do that for the rest of your life. <laughs> the call of God is difficult. The life of holiness is painful. The sacrifices of following the kingdom are hard. You can't do them out of your own strength. You'll give up because it's not worth it. But, but, when you actually experience the love of God, that, that beautiful cocktail of the love of God mixed with the glory of God, I want you to know something. That's enough for you. That's enough to satisfy your heart, to satisfy the desires of your heart. It's actually more than you need. It actually overflows out of you. There's enough to go. When you step into the real love of God and the real glory of God, feet first, you realize there's enough to go around. There's enough to satisfy your heart and every heart that was ever born. And out of the overflow of the radical love and grace of God, in the joy that you receive from being so loved, you can give a yes. A hard yes. A sacrificial yes. A yes that costs you. So I'm going to end by asking us to draw ourselves back to this amazing love that Jesus has ushered into us. The love that, that moves us from fear to joy. The love that brings us into the throne room to bask in the glory. Let's root ourselves, beloved, in the joy of our salvation. Let's let that pure, unadulterated enjoyment of the goodness of God in your life, let's let that carry us out of this space into the world. In the closing of the book of Malachi, in Malachi 4, he prophesies the ministry of Jesus, and there's this amazing word picture in verse 2. It says, But you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves fresh from the stall. See, it's this image of when the cows have to be put away for the winter. You got these little baby cows, and they, they're going to freeze to death. They're out there, so they lock them up in the barn, and they basically stay there all winter long eating hay. When springtime comes and it's warm and it's safe and the farmer lets them out. You can look up videos of this on YouTube. It's really adorable. They let them out and these little cows for the first time in their life see sunlight and warmth and green grass. And they literally just start jumping around. Just uncontrollably happy. Jumping, 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 jumping. Enjoying what God has made them for. Beloved, that is what the love of God does for you. It opens the door for you to step into the glory you were built for. And that's just fun. Full of joy. So, let's take a minute, beloved. I want to I walk you with me through a time of prayer. And I'm going to invite us to consider just a couple things in this prayer. I want you to open your prayer by just considering the holiness of God. And again, I know that's one of those things where it's like, that's an abstract but think about the text we've looked at. Think about the words we've read. Think about what we've discussed. Consider the holiness of God, the perfection of God. And I want you to do the hard work of just afresh putting that next to your own life and your own sin. So let's start with a moment of just worship in your own prayer and by yourself in your seat. Let's just consider the glory of God as scriptures, as words come to your mind in your own head. And by the way, you can do this in your seat if you want to find some space to get on your knees, I would invite you to do that because he is worthy of it. Let's take a few minutes in your prayer 
worship the Lord, consider his glory, and then I'm going to lead us into a little bit of a time of confession. Take a few minutes and pray.